Hello and welcome to Teaching Python. This is episode 29, non-traditional K-12 Python instruction. My name is Sean Tiber. I'm a coder who teaches, and I'm joined by my co-host this week, Kelly Paredes. And I'm a teacher who codes. We also have two guests on us on our show this week as a panel discussion. We're joined by Brianne Kaplan and Gabrielle Rabinowitz. Welcome, ladies. Hi, nice to be here. Yes. Well, we met Gabrielle and Brianne at PyCon in May of 2019 in Cleveland, and we were really excited to hear about the work they were doing. Both Brianne and Gabrielle work in non-traditional classroom settings, working in after-school programs, nonprofits, ways to bring Python coding to a broader audience, especially as computer science is not always taught in every school. So we are really lucky to have them here, and we really like the way that they are approaching Python education and as a way for social change as well. So just as, as brief introductions, Gabrielle, would you tell us a little bit about the program that you're part of? Absolutely. So I'm the lead teacher for the Bridge Up STEM program at the American Museum of Natural History in New York City. And this is a program that's been around for about five years now. And it has a lot of opportunities. The primary mission of the program is to increase representation of women in computer science. And the part of the program I'm mostly involved in is our Brown Scholars Program, which is a summer and after-school program for high school girls in the New York City area. It's a free program. And they learn Python here at the museum. And they learn how to code in a science research context. So all of the Python they're learning they're learning how to apply it to answer scientific questions and taking advantage of the resources at the museum to start answering those questions. That's amazing. We're, we're so excited to talk later about how you bring that Python into the science curriculum. It's going to be a really big highlight for me and Sean as we, as we dig into this podcast. Brianne, you wear a couple of different hats in your, in your professional coding life. You're a data scientist and also an educator. Can you tell us a little bit about both roles? Definitely. So I'll start with my role as an educator. I'm the founder and executive director of 501c3 nonprofit called Code Your Dreams. We help students build community-focused applications from ideation to final product. Our core program is a weekly after-school program for both middle and high school students. And like Gabrielle, we're also a free program, so we're really intentional about reaching students who don't currently have access to quality STEM education opportunities. Our curriculum, it's all about project-based learning and giving students experience into the entire product development cycle from design thinking to UI UX to programming with Python, product management, and finally to sales and marketing. So our students wear lots and lots of different hats there. So that's what I do as an educator. And then I also work full-time as a data scientist at a company called Edovo, whose mission is to make better lives for everyone who's connected to incarceration. I remember we had that speaker at PyCon come and talk about rehabilitation and what other places are doing in order to to rehabilitate people back into society. And I, I read up on your bio, I'm really interested to hear more about both of those aspects. It's so exciting what you're doing for social good and for the communities. Yeah, thanks. So we like to start every week the same way we always do. And it's always exciting for us to have guests on the show to hear a little bit about what's been going on in your week and what's happening. So we always start with the win of the week, which is something good that's happened inside or outside of the classroom, something positive to share. And so, Brianne, we're going to start with you. 
Do you have a win of the week to share this week? Definitely. So Code Your Dreams, we recently recruited a brand new cohort of volunteers, and I'm super excited. So I have to give a shout out to our amazing volunteer coordinator, Victoria, and we'll be having our official kickoff event this Saturday for our volunteer teams. They have the objective of improving upon our Python curriculum materials on GitHub. So my win of the week is, even before kickoff, two of our fabulous volunteers already submitted three different pool requests this week to improve lessons on data structures, if statements, and loops. So giving a shout out to my volunteer, Nikki Marino there, and also on functions, shout out to Anita Padman, another wonderful volunteer on that one. Sounds exciting. That's really cool. Is your GitHub available or open for people to take a peek at if they wanted to see more about what you're teaching? Definitely. It's, I believe, just github.com slash code your dreams. And we'll nice. provide the link at the end of our, our show notes if you make that available. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. All right, Gabrielle, it's your turn. Do you have something, a win to share this week that that's positive inside or outside of the classroom? Yeah, I sure do. So yesterday was mine and the students' first day back in the classroom after a number of days off. Our program normally meets on Mondays and Wednesdays after school, but due to a number of holidays and Indigenous Peoples Day, we had a lot of days off. So there was a challenge there of we had only had our very first two class sessions before then. I was worried about the momentum being lost. But I used the Python flashcards that Eric Mathis have developed that is provided by Python, that's provided by No Starch Press. And so I started off this class by having the students review the concepts we had gone over with the flashcards. And I think right away, it restored that momentum. They remembered some of the concepts that I think they otherwise would have forgotten. And so that helped us start the day off with a a good foot forward. Yeah, those cards are great. I think they really work well for getting kids thinking about one concept rather than the entire ocean of Python, right? (laughs) So it's a great way to get them moving and thinking and diving back in. I'm glad to hear that it's working over there for you as well. I think the terminology can be really intimidating and we're throwing a lot of new terms or terms that we're, we're using in different ways. And I think having them start off the day by reviewing what those words mean in the Python context can be super helpful. I I think it also, it helps build that confidence. If once you hear these words, if you can, if you can at least grasp on to some sort of definition or understanding, I think it's such a a great feeling for a student to go, oh yeah, I know that. So well done. Yeah, exactly. And Sean, how about you? How's your win? Well, it's it's been kind of a tough week because we are in the middle of our final project for the quarter. And I say it's a tough week because it's a chaotic week. It's a lot of things going on and a lot of students asking for help and, and questions and things like that. So there's a lot of, of technical stuff happening. And I think the, the win was yesterday. And it actually started off with a couple of girls that I think were in over their head on the technology. They had reached pretty far for something and it was a little bit far out of their grasp. And so I called a timeout and said, hey, I think you need to maybe rethink this project and how you could approach it in a different way because it's just you're not there yet. You're not ready for it. You will be, but not right now. And they seemed pretty dejected by that. I think they were frustrated and didn't feel good about it. And then today they came back in and they had rethought everything that they wanted to do. They had done some research. They had found some things that they thought were more more within their reach. And they made so much progress today. And it was such a better experience for them. And so it was like, you know, kind of taking something that 
could have made you feel defeated and turned it into something that was really positive and they just regained their momentum in less than 24 hours. And it was, it was, it made me feel a lot better about where they're going. And I knew that it would be a better outcome for them that they would, instead of walking away feeling dejected or demoralized that they couldn't get something to work, they felt confident that they could make it work and that things were happening. That's cool. I love this 20% time opportunity that we have at the end of the quarter. I think that's going to be my, my win of the week. I actually have two. I'm sorry. I'm cheating. So one of the students, we gave him the trellis from Adafruit, which we've seen, we've played with a little bit of code, but we really haven't actually coded anything. And he made a huge breakthrough today with going in and finding some code and starting to realize about the grid pattern and what the buttons were called. And I thought that was really cool. But the huge win was from one of my students who's on her fourth iteration of a game that she's been working on all quarter long on and off on her own time. First iteration was with just two basic lists, popping and making a list, choosing a random item from the list. And now she's starting to build functions and it's a cards against humanity. She hasn't looked online for the code at all. This 200 plus lines are all her own, her own code. And she's just really digging into it. And she's one of those students that you have to ask her if she has any questions. She just sits there and she goes, well, I've been grappling on something for about three days (laughs) and (laughs) I fixed it. And now I have 10 more problems. I was like, welcome to coding. (laughs) So it was such a great win today to hear her say, but I'm going to do it. I'm going to finish this game before the end of the year. And I said, awesome. I love it. So it was a good win. Nice. Yeah, I, I watched that also, and I thought it was really great. She just was was just tenacious in her approach to get it get it done. So, you know, one of the things that Kelly and I enjoy about our role as teachers is that we get to see students every day like that. We get not so much that every day is a, a tenacious win, but that we see students every day during the day, and we get to see their progress as they are learning Python. And we wanted to talk with the both of you to understand more about non-traditional roles outside of a traditional classroom or school setting and learn about how you are approaching Python education and computer science education. And I love the, the two different approaches that you've got in your program between product development and science research. So I think we're going to have a really great conversation about this. But to get started... How did you each get started learning Python or learning computer science? How did you become computer science educators? Well, I started learning Python during my first job after college, somewhat due to boredom, actually. There was a competition at my work to build a product, any product, and I decided to compete. And the idea I had was for a software tool that would aggregate and analyze industry news for our clients. And I knew I had to do things like web scraping and natural language processing and a whole lot of network analysis. And so I didn't know much about Python, but I heard through the grapevine, Google and Twitter, that Python was the language for the job. So I dove deep into Python and never looked back. Previously, I was doing a little bit of C Sharp and JavaScript. And this endeavor for learning Python was entirely project-based learning. So I ended up building that MVP from scratch in just a few months and won the competition. And I don't think I could have ever learned what I did in that short few months if I didn't have this sort of project to drive my learning. So I think 
this experience that I have, I always think about to why I'm personally such a big proponent for project-based learning. I love that. You're, we're going to have so many more conversations after this podcast. I'm such a big project-based learner. <laughs> Fabulous. <laughs> always happy to discuss. Absolutely. And Gabrielle, how about you? I love uh, noticing the parallels between what Brianne just said and my own experience. So I learned how to code in graduate school. I was in a program at Rockefeller University studying molecular genetics and looking at really large data sets of RNA transcripts, so sequences. And basically my data sets were so large. At the time, I was still using Excel for data analysis and my data sets were just crashing Excel, right? I needed, I needed to learn something new, but did not have the right tools for the task. And so I was lucky that there was a Python course being offered at that time that I was able to take. And similar to Brianne, I had a project, right? I had a specific goal I needed Python 4. I needed Python to analyze these genetic data sets and find out, you know, the differences in gene expression across the different data sets I was looking at. And so I was really excited to learn how to use Python for that. And now when I am teaching students, I have that same approach, right? We're using, we're learning Python, but we're learning how to use it to answer scientific questions. Yeah, it's something that Sean and I always talk about. It's the the fact that you have to have something to work towards in order to learn Python. It's something that Sean told me at the very beginning when I was when I was learning Python, what is a project you want to do? And I think when you when you don't really have a need, you don't really see the point. But once you find something that you're passionate about and you want to solve, Python comes a lot easier. So Gabrielle, we'll we'll stick with you for a minute. How has that experience of learning Python to be able to answer scientific questions and, and analyze data, how has that influenced your role as a lead educator? You know, does that, you know, has that influenced the way that you're designing the curriculum? In what ways is that helping these students find a, a better way to conduct scientific research if they have some coding skills? Yeah, I think it's really at the heart of what we do here. I think it's that my experience and background was the reason why I was, you know, a fit for this position and able, able to do what I do here at the museum. It really is in, it's woven entirely through what we do. So from the very beginning, when the students are learning every coding concept, they immediately have a scientific application to apply it to. So when we first learned data types, we went down to one of our halls here at the museum, the Hall of Planet Earth, and they collected data and information about, you know, the minerals and rocks inside of our planet. And then they came back and, and assigned that those values to variables and, okay, you know, the age of this rock, is it better put as a float or an integer or a string? And so just from that very beginning, from then all the way up to later on, we'll be working with authentic scientific data sets. It's, as you mentioned, Sean, it gives the students a reason to care. You know, a lot of our students are excited about science, but are intimidated by coding at first. So they, you know, they've, they've had science classes at school. Most of them, if not all of them, have not had coding classes or coding experiences before. But by giving them this, this connection where it says, okay, you want, we all think this thing is cool. We all think science is cool. How can we use coding to start answering these questions? Because that's what you know, professional scientists are doing these days. As I learned myself, this is such an essential tool for scientific inquiry. It's, it's amazing. I'm having a, one of those moments where I'm a little <laughs> bit blown away right now by like, having my perspective changed. Because 
I guess having more of a formal computer science education, I was always taught here are the data types and now here are some examples of those data types and to go the other direction and say, here's all of this data in this domain area and then say, now what data type should it be? I love it. (laughs) I'm sitting here looking at him going, oh my gosh, my head's spinning. I cannot wait to go back to the science teachers because I'm the person that is like, I hate hardware. I hate hardware and I'm struggling to get my head around hardware. And I'm here playing with Matplotlib and NumPy and and graphing. and, And I'm like... Why doesn't anyone else find this so interesting? Join the dark side. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a pre-med student in, from college, so I think that's why we connect so well. Ah, nana, nana, boo, boo. Keep that in the, <laughs> keep that in the podcast. <laughs> I'm sorry. Computational science. We'll get back to being serious here. That term I read, can you explain what computational science is? Is that that collection of data? Is uh, What is that? <laughs> That's a great question. I can try. <laughs> I think this is one of those questions that, I mean, one of those concepts that everyone has their own definition for. You know, we define the Bridge Up STEM program as existing at the intersection of science and computational work or computational science. And what that often means is, you know, a data analysis, data visualization. That's the easiest way to think about it. But there's, especially nowadays, there's so many more ways in which coding and computational work are relevant to science. So we've got machine learning, modeling, statistics, right? All of these are ways in which you can apply coding to scientific inquiry. So I think any time you're using coding to facilitate scientific work, that's computational science. Excellent. So Brianna, I, I think I, I'm hoping that you'll be able to show us kind of how your experience as a product designer and coming from, you know, that that project where you are competing to create a product, how has that influenced your curriculum design in the Code Your Dreams program? Definitely. Well, I'll just echo what Gabrielle said: is that we need to give students that reason to care, and I think. My experience having a project that allowed me to dive deep into Python, that really drove how we built our curriculum. So our curriculum is divided into four parts. We have discuss, design, develop, and deliver. And this goes through the entire product development cycle. So starting with discuss, students at Code Your Dreams begin with learning about the design thinking process. So they think about communities that they're a part of, what makes them great and beautiful, but also what everyday problems they see in their communities. And then from there, they come up with an idea for an application they can build that solves that community problem. And then that takes our students into the next phase of our curriculum, which is called design. So our students learn the fundamentals of user experience and design, They prototype their apps, they test them with target users in their communities, they iterate, test again, and so on and so on. So at the end of this phase, our students come out with a final design, which leads them into the develop phase, where they start learning basic coding fundamentals in order to actually develop that application to final product. It gets a little bit tricky here for us because each curriculum is entirely specialized for the applications that our students are developing. So if we think about a student team building a chat app, that curriculum looks completely different than a student team building an app with a core mapping function, for example. So 
At the end of this phase, our students have their apps. They create Flask apps using Python, and then that leads them to their final phase, which is Deliver, where students focus on delivering their amazing, extraordinary apps to the wider community. They learn things like problem statements and elevator pitches, the cores of sales and marketing. So like I mentioned before, this goes through the entire product development cycle from start to finish. Students wearing tons of different types of hats and the purpose, or I guess the hope is that although not everyone wants to become a Python programmer, that's fair. I did. Most people don't. But there should be a part of the process that sparks some sort of passion in every student who goes through our program. And right? in terms of the or in general, and I know that this is a little bit of a, a guess, but in general, how much of your curriculum is actually computer science, coding, Python, things like that versus those other skills that you mentioned around product development? It's about 70%, 60 to 70%. Okay. And how long are how long is the the course? Or so our core program runs coincides with the school year. Sometimes we do smaller programs for schools where it's like an expedited boot camp type. But yeah, our core program is the entire school year. And That's, you have both middle school and high school students in your program, right? Right. We've done one program that was first through third grade. That's not our core competency, but it was definitely the most adorable class I've ever taught. <laughs> <laughs> so it's it's interesting to me. Both of you do not come from an educational background, correct? You guys are, you guys were never, never teachers like Sean. You, you were other curriculum, other areas of expertise. Is that correct? Yeah. I came from a science research and, and academic background. Along the way though, I always took advantage of opportunities to do science outreach and going into classrooms. And I, I was always sort of a, like a wannabe teacher, right? Always sort of popping into classrooms whenever I got a chance. I think one experience that really bridged the gap for me was I got a chance to serve as a temporary faculty at Bard College as part of their citizen science program where I was part of a cohort of teachers and we got to develop a curriculum for their sort of interterm course that all freshmen have to participate in and it's sort of a science literacy course. And that was the the first time I got got to really get my my you know hands dirty with real curriculum development and I really fell in love with it. So ever since then I've now that I'm in informal education, I definitely do feel like I'm playing catch up sometimes with taking advantage of as much educational professional development as I can and learning from people who've been in the classroom for a long time. But yeah, that's that's sort of my my history there. I find it I find it incredible because I think that one of the conversations that Sean and I often have in that that kind of stemmed to how we came about is that it's hard to find people that can teach computer science so well and with a well-rounded curriculum. And, it, and it's just, it's interesting. As, as Brianne was talking, I'm thinking, oh, she was PBL practice. Oh, she had the design thinking curriculum. Oh, she had design technology. And as you were talking about how you went about and just totally flipped, flipped the switch of how we were thinking of how we approach Python teaching, it's just so interesting how you can bring in these pieces and, and not come from an educational background. It just kind of proves our point that it's really necessary to bring these in into a classroom. All right. So tell us how you create the environment for your students. You know, Gabrielle showed us our, her classroom on, on Zoom before we started, kind of gave us a, a look at her classroom. 
how did you come up with that space? How did they get started? And then Brianne, like as you're developing these programs for other schools, how did you create that, you know, both a physical and you know, virtual environment for, for your programs as well? So I inherited this classroom. I was not part of the, the initial design for it, but I'm very lucky that whoever designed it did a great job with it. It has both a for more formal, more formal education sort of side where there are small tables with four chairs around them, still small table setting, not, not you know, lecture format. But there, there are screens where students, so there's, I can, you know, show them, show them code or show them slides and a whiteboard. But we also have a back of the room that's a more informal space with cushions and chairs and, and that can be moved around. And the students often will come back here for breaks or before or after classes. Sometimes we'll come back here just to have a discussion type, you know, phase of the, of learning. And we call this room the den, right? We, we don't just call it the classroom, we call it the den. And I think that gets at our vision for it, which is that it's a comfortable space, it's a fun space, and it's a space that feels safe to learn and to explore. Brianna, how do you create the environment in your in your teaching space? Yeah, so Code Your Dreams, we sometimes have to be a little bit creative about what we make our classroom, whether that's computer lab or a school or a coffee shop or really any space that we can find. But I think one thing that stays true for whatever physical location that we have is that we, I would describe our classes as similar to what Gabrielle said, just as open, collaborative, creative, definitely silly at times, just a fun place to be since we are an after school program. And I think that one big thing is as teachers, we definitely put a lot of care into creating these open and positive environments for our students to be able to take risks and be themselves. I think I find that learning something new, especially something like a programming language, which for our program, our students have not had any prior experience with, it's often stressful and it can cause a lot of anxiety. And I've, I felt that too when learning a new programming language. So we make sure that we give students everything they need to be successful wherever our classroom is at programming. And that definitely goes well beyond coding fundamentals. So we make sure to teach students things like how to stay relaxed while debugging. So it definitely shouldn't be a surprise for anyone that things like meditation practices or breathing exercises for example, incur, occur in most of our classrooms. Yes, you gave us that one tip at PineCon, and I use it a lot. In fact, today we we took a moment to just breathe in, and we didn't do the how do you feel, how do you see, what do you see? What was it again? Can you please tell us what you, you told us at PineCon, Brian? What are you feeling? <laughs> <laughs> so I find that a lot of times when programming, we get so involved in our heads, and it becomes important that we kind of get grounded in our own bodies and what's happening in the now. So our students practice the five things. So you look at what you start with, what are five things that I can see right now? So like I can see this coffee cup and my phone and this laptop and the tree out the window and so on. And then what are four things that I can hear? What are three things that I can feel? What are two things that I can smell? And then what's one thing that I can taste? 
And for some of my students, that really brings them back to the here and the now and can alleviate some stress in the moment. You know, one of the other things that I like too, and I think Gabrielle brought this up at PyCon, was how to get comfortable with the things that often make us uncomfortable in coding. And I think it was in particular, it was error messages. Gabrielle, I think you had a, a really great way of, of getting students to not feel anxiety or trepidation when they encountered an error. And I, I wanted to see if you would share that with us as well. Absolutely. Yeah. From the very beginning, I, I try with all my heart to tell the students that error messages are our friends, not to be afraid of them, but I can tell them that as many times as I want. But what I've learned is that one way to get them to experience that is I have them intentionally create each kind of error message that we're likely to encounter. So they, I give them code that works <laughs> and they have to break it in as many ways as they can. So they have to create a syntax error. They have to create a name error. They have to create a type error. And by flipping that, we're all of a sudden getting the error message is the win moment as opposed to a moment of, oh no, I've failed. I hope that that, can, that starts them on that process of recognizing, oh, these error messages are actually good information for me and not something to be afraid of. And I think it also adds a measure of control, right? If they're causing the error to happen intentionally, there's this intent behind it, they feel like they're in control of it now instead of something that's happening to them, right? And then that's a great point. Absolutely. And when the, that output comes back in the traceback, they can see that it has exactly what they made as the error. I think that's a great five minute challenge. I'm going to try that next quarter. I'll let you know how it goes. <laughs> yeah, I love that. It's such good <laughs> gamification. Absolutely. So, you guys are both working with the underprivileged minorities. Tell us a little bit more about what got you into teaching for social good. How does that? It takes a, a special person to to really have that as their their focus. And I wanted to just make sure we understood too. Are are these necessarily underprivileged people, or are they people who are just underrepresented? People Upper, who oh. may may not have been given all of the opportunities to be in a STEM field, or for a variety of reasons, just have haven't chosen to participate. Yeah, I can speak for Code Your Dreams. We focus on low-income neighborhoods, as well as underrepresented communities in technology. Can you like, expand on, is it is it the school system that, that lacks the funding for us? And, and we come from a, a different type of school. We come from an independent school. And so we don't often have the opportunity to know what's not available. I have worked in Peru and I have gone to underprivileged and underfunded schools in Peru, but I've not really seen as many as I should in Florida or in other places in the United States. And I'm not sure a lot of our listeners understand that that really exists sometimes. Yeah. So, well, I'm originally from Baltimore, which has its fair share of public education challenges, like Chicago, which is where I live now. And what I've seen, especially with computer science education, is that the problems occur in four big buckets. So first is lack of teachers. So over half of public school districts in the nations report that they struggle to recruit and retain certified and effective STEM teachers. And we also just know that most people who are graduating with a computer science degree don't go into teaching. So it's not a surprise that we don't find as many teachers with those skills actually in our public school classrooms. So that's number one. Number two would just be, you know, computer science is newer in our classrooms. So we lack 
that sort of standardized curriculum. There are a few organizations and universities who are trying to come up with some sort of standardized curriculum, but there also needs to be training available for current teachers that are actually in the classroom. And then the third bucket that I see is really just lack of gear. Some schools that I work with, they might only have a couple working computers. They might not have a fully operating computer lab, which would shock a lot of people. There just is a huge disparity, even in the same public school system from one school to another. So if you don't have a computer, it is probably pretty challenging, or it is very challenging to then even teach computer science. And then the last bucket, which is related to number three, is just lack of funding. So I usually source a study that's released by the Education Trust every year. And looking at just Illinois, which is where I live, schools in 2017 were underfunded by about $2.4 billion. And that's a lot of money, especially for the schools that need it the most. And that isn't, you know, they're already underfunded. So to put more money into training teachers for computer science specifically just isn't happening. Gabrielle, can you tell us a little bit about how the Bridget program approaches this and who who you primarily serve in terms of the communities around the the museum? Yeah, absolutely. So first of all, we serve everyone in the New York City area. So it's not just restricted to schools or that are near the museum. We have students from all the boroughs. I'm not sure if we have anyone from Staten Island, actually, but we do have students from New Jersey and even Pennsylvania. If they have family members in New York and are able to get here, for example, for our summer program, we've had people participating from as far away as, as other states. And the way we, so first of all, the program is just for women, for young women. And so that's already an underrepresented group in coding and especially at the higher levels of, of administration in the tech industry. But beyond that, we also focus the program on students who have had limited access to coding classes and resources so far. So that's our way of getting at the student population that we think has the greatest need for a program like this. You know, increasingly New York City is beginning to offer computer science in many classes in many schools, but not all. There are a number of programs and those are also growing in number, which is great. But we find that students who, there are some students who are already sort of on that path, either through school or through an extracurricular, they are already learning how to code, which is wonderful. But we want to be that, that open door and that avenue for students who haven't already started on that path. Nice. That is really cool that it's, you've got that kind of reach geographically to, to get to so many people and give them this opportunity. I think that's really a great, great way to think about the community that you serve is not necessarily being in the immediate area, but being broader than that and, and more inclusive of people, you know, and, and the needs that they have. And I want to touch back on, I think it, your third bucket about there's not a lot of teachers out there who are able to teach coding. And this goes into the, to the kind of question that Sean and I have, how can we get more teachers like me? I've never, I didn't code. I, I used, I did Lego robotics and I did a little bit of HTML and I got into Python about a year and a half ago. And I just said, well, what the heck? We're going to do it. So how do you think if there's any magical way of getting those teachers to switch into coding? Do you have maybe any ideas or 
suggestions because I think if we get more teachers out there who can code, then we'll have more opportunities at least to, if not necessarily directly teach it in computer science, but at least bring it into the curriculum, say a science teacher or a math teacher. Any suggestions? Yeah, well, I think it's definitely challenging and putting the onus on teachers to be the ones to drive their learning trajectory to me just isn't fair because we know teachers, (laughs) they're the busiest people that we know. And so to put that onus on them just isn't going to work. I think that as professionals in the technology space, there's a lot of things that we can do to help support our teachers, helping with little things like, or big things like curriculum development for teachers, helping with teacher training, coming into the classroom with teachers and teaching alongside. I think that as whether you're a software engineer, a data scientist, whatever it might be in technology, I think that there's a lot of opportunity to do a lot more to help support teachers. And I think, Gabrielle, did you want to add to that? Yeah, I just had a couple of other suggestions. I I totally agree with what Brianne was saying. As a person who works in a cultural institution, I encourage teachers to reach out to local museums, libraries, see what these sorts of organizations already have in place that they can take advantage of. It could be something they can bring their students to, but or it could be something that could be taken back to the classroom. Um, Increasingly, resources are educational resources are being put online, even if they are originally connected to an exhibit or something that took place at a museum. And then I also think that the Hour of Code is a great way that teachers can get a first, you know, first step in that direction. It's a really low time commitment, relatively speaking. It's something that you can try out and see how it goes. And I've spoken to a lot of teachers who, for whom that was their first foray into bringing coding into the classroom. Nice. So I did want to ask you, as you're working with the students and as you've brought students through your program, the question is, so so what? So we've taught students about computer science we've, through a variety of ways. We've either through a product design life cycle or through scientific research. So what? So what has that done for them? And I know I have my own so what. I'm trying to get your perspective on what this can do for students. Like having this education, what has this done for them? What have they been able to achieve as a result of learning Python and learning computer science as part of your programs? Yeah, I'd be happy to. I'm lucky enough now that as I've been in this position for two years, some of the students that I, my first students I taught are now applying for college. And it's really exciting and thrilling for me to to see, to hear from them and to, to hear what the way they're now looking at them themselves and their futures. So one student in particular I'm thinking of, when she first started, she was very nervous about learning how to code. She was learning English as a new language at the same time as she was learning Python. And, and yet she always had that, that enthusiasm of, okay, I'm, I'm ready for the next thing. I'm ready for the next thing. I think that the supportive community we've created here, the sense that it's, you're not getting a grade, you're not getting, you know, we're not failing you if you get an error message, but that instead this is just a space where you can explore and experiment with other students was really beneficial for her. And I've now heard from her and and read, she even shared with us her college essay, wherein she talks about this program and how it was a space where she was able to discover her confidence in herself. And now she's applying for college to do statistics and computer science. And so, you know, they've really, a lot of them have really found not just a passion for coding, but a sense of themselves as empowered, you know, people in the world. And so that to to me is, is 
really tells us that at least in some cases, we're accomplishing what we set out to do, which is not just teach people how to code, but empower these young women to, to know that they have what it takes and that they can go forward with confidence into the world. I don't even know how to, how to respond <laughs> to that. That's amazing. That's, that's everything that got me into teaching in the first place was that hope to help people discover their strengths and discover who they are and what they're capable of doing. And, and so I'm just, I'm thrilled to hear that. Brianne, I don't, I hope you're able to follow up on that because that was pretty amazing. I, I am speechless. Speechless. <laughs> yeah, I wish I was able to go first. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think from what I've seen with my students at Code Your Dreams, opportunities like these are definitely life changing especially working with students who attend schools that are extremely under-resourced, giving them the opportunity to have an idea for themselves, have their voices heard, and then actually create something real from start to finish. I think that just that entire process on its own is incredibly impactful as an individual to be able to see that you can have an idea and then make it come to life and have your hands in the entire process of getting it there. I also think that these types of opportunities are really important because it creates some sort of passion and spark for students. They might not have felt that spark in their during the school day, but giving students the opportunity to learn something new and create something real, I think is really important. I'm not sure if you're familiar with PBL and project-based learning, the actual PBL works, but their whole philosophy is about getting in front of an audience. And you said something earlier about how your students need to deliver their product. Are you hoping, are you seeing change within the community from any of these products? Have you had an opportunity to see that happen yet? Yeah, that's a great question. I definitely think it's, creates a lot of excitement for communities to see students who are only in middle or high school actually create technology that impacts everyone or certain people who live in that community. And I think it not only impacts the community at the end of the program where they're actually giving their final presentations, but I think it makes an impact in the community, even the journey up to that point. Since all of our students or technologies are serving people who live in their communities, all of their user testing also occurs in their communities. So I think they're testing with their peers, they're testing with neighbors and family and friends. And I think just because, not just because only they're getting this sort of education in the program, they're sharing their learnings and their entrepreneurship to a whole ton of people who they meet with day to day. Excellent. I want to get, I said one more question, but I have one more question. <laughs> so, you know, I, I love what both of you do and we wish that we could, we could help more, but is there anything you want to share with, with our community and, and, and our listeners about anything that they can do or they can help, or maybe how they can start a program or go to a museum and have a program like bridge up any suggestions on how other Pythonistas out there can can promote computer science and for social good in their communities? Gabrielle? Well, I mean, 
If anyone who's listening is in the New York City area, I encourage them to encourage the young women they know in ninth or 10th grade to apply for our program. Applications will be opening again this winter. And so the uh, link I'm sure that that, uh, Sean and Kelly will share with you all about a link to our Bridge Up Brown Scholars website. And then for anyone who works in a museum, museums sometimes, especially large ones like the Museum of Natural History, can feel like they are, you know, institutions that are stuck in the past. And I hope that people can see what we're doing here as an inspiration to to not be afraid of, to bring in new technologies and new approaches to teaching in these spaces. And, and to coders and Pythonistas, definitely, like I mentioned earlier, to educators, but this is true for everyone, just reach out to your local museum or library, see what they're already doing with regards to coding, and see if they would like you to come and be a guest speaker, uh, work with students, be a mentor. Because I know we, for example, are always looking for female coders in the New York City area who want to come and speak to our students, either come to us or host us at their uh, tech company. We like to show our students what they could, could be in store for them in the future. Brienne, do you have anything to add to that in terms of how Pythonistas, people who have a background in computer science or product development, could help bring computer science education and product education to their communities? Definitely. So to speak on behalf of Code Your Dreams, we're always looking for volunteers in many different areas, volunteers to teach actually in our classrooms, volunteers to help out with things like curriculum development, which means you don't need to be in the Chicago area. And I've actually, I recently been reached out by someone who lives in the Boston area who is interested in bringing the Code Your Dreams curriculum to Boston. And so if any Pythonistas out there are also interested in having this type of curriculum or programming wherever they are, then I'm always happy to help and see how we can make that work together. Exciting news for both of you guys. Well, we can wrap up here, I I think, just by saying we're totally blown away by the work that you're doing. It's really amazing. And ever since we met you at PyCon last year, Kelly and I have spoken about the amazing work that you're doing and how we really had to get you on the show to hear more about it and and learn more about what you're doing. And so I also want to say thank you for doing the work that you're doing. It's really important that we have a diversity of people represented in computer science for a whole variety of reasons. And so for you to lend your talent and your voice and your thoughts to this area is really important to me personally, but I think also to our community at large. I'm not going to speak for Kelly, but I can see on her face that (laughs) it's really important to her too right now. But just our, our community at large, what you're doing is important and it's an investment in our collective future as a community to be bringing more young students and talented students into this field. And I just am so thankful that you're doing it and thankful for the, for you to join us on the show and tell us all about it. Well, right back at both of you. Thank you so much for <laughs> Well, I think, so with that, we're going to wrap up and, and we'll definitely want you back on the show in the future to talk more about the programs. If anyone wants to reach out to Brianne and Gabrielle, we will have links to their respective programs on the on the show notes. We'll also we can also find both of you on Twitter. So if you want to follow each of these talented women in the field that they're working in and see the stuff that they're doing every day, it's always great to see what they're doing. We'll post a link to their Twitter handles on on the show notes as well. If you'd like to follow us, we're at Teaching Python on Twitter, 
and you can always send us thoughts and comments through our website at teachingpython.fm. So with that, we're going to sign off. This is Sean. And this is Kelly. Signing off. <laughs>